There'll be no more kneeling, no more bowing, no more kneeling after a while, no more weeping, no more crying, no more weeping after a while. And before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to be my Lord and to go home to be with my Lord and be free. In a sense, we're going to move away from the subject of slavery to the late 19th century, to the 20th century. We're going to move from a terrain that is not understood in the United States, slavery, to, a terrain, to another terrain that is not understood in the United States, racism, and discrimination. Recently I testified as a character witness in court for a professor and he was up against someone who owned two pit bulls and used them to intimidate this professor's family. And the professor put a, went to court and got a restraining order against this master of two dogs who went to court and maintained that the professor was racist against pit bulls, which suggested to me that he had not the slightest understanding of racism. I wasn't asked to testify about that, fortunately, but if I had been, I would have said, well, I've read a lot about racism and I've read a lot by racists, but nowhere have they included dogs in their catalog of races. Other times, students have told me, well, what about when China invaded Vietnam? Wasn't that racist? And they say this with absolute conviction. And I have to tell them, well, I don't believe in races. But please tell me what races were involved when China invaded Vietnam because I don't understand what you're trying to say. Or another example they had was the Zulu against other Bantu in Southern Africa. It's very easy to confuse racism with nationalism, with religious zeal, and a host of other things. So we move from one terrain that's not well understood to another. And I'll leave you with this last thought, which is a kind of play on what one of the panelists said on the first panel this morning. Race is not real. It's not a meaningful social category. We know that, or some of us do. 
On the other hand, racism is real. It's like Christmas. You know, you can't see it, but it's coming. And it's real. And I tell my white students, it will kill you as fast as it will black people. If your white Aryan landlord has an attack dog, that dog will attack you whether you're white or black. That's what happened up in San Francisco. Racism can kill white people as fast as it kills black people. Now don't you tell anyone that, because that's top secret. It's not to be broadcast. Today, for our second panel, we have Professor Michael Brown in the Graduate School of Education serving as the moderator of Racism and Discrimination After Emancipation. And we have, as a commentator, the current occupant of the whole chair in Women's Studies, Eileen Boris. Now I'm going to turn this over to Michael Brown. Thank you, thank you. Well, we're still in the morning, so good morning. Um, I'm looking forward to another stimulating panel, Racism and Discrimination After Emancipation. I will uh, introduce the, the speakers uh, um, before each presentation and uh, make a little introduction of them. Uh, we're going to start uh, with uh, Brenda Plummer. Uh, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, her presentation, uh, Inter-Ocean International Protests and the Legacy of Slavery. Um, Brenda Gale Plummer is a historian whose current research includes race and gender, international relations, and civil rights. She is the author of Haiti and the Great Powers, uh, 1902 to 1915, and Haiti, uh, the Psychological Moment. Um, her latest book, Rising Wind, Black Americans and U.S. Foreign Affairs, between 1935 and 1960, was co-winner of the 1997 Wesley Logan Prize awarded by the Organization of American H uh, Historians and winner of the 1998 Myrna Bernath Prize awarded by the Society of Historians of American Foreign Relations. Uh, uh, just a quick... Um, uh, uh, some logistical matters. We're going to try to make these about 15 minutes to leave enough time at the end uh, for questions and answers from the, from the audience. Uh, now will you welcome uh, Brenda Plummer. Thank you. It's good to be back in, in Santa Barbara. Uh, I was a dissertation fellow at the Center for Black Studies here, uh, and um, it was really nice to come back here and see old friends again. Um, this paper um, was originally going to be a retrospective that would go back to the 18th century and look at how uh, people in the African diaspora 
protested slavery and the consequences of slavery. Um, but given the fact that we've got 15 minutes here, uh, this is going to be somewhat much more truncated. Uh, and uh, what I'll do instead is to focus on uh, some topics uh, rather than uh, stress chronological connections. Uh, we want to look in particular at councils of states and states and the connection between black international protest and the emerging international movement for reparations uh, uh, for the history of slavery and racial oppression in the West. The institution of slavery poisoned the democratic ideals of the United States and has shaped its forms of being in the world since the founding of the Republic. Its skeletal hand continues to mold American attitudes and behavior through the operation of its monstrous offspring, racism. Because racial identity pervades U.S. society and remains such an overwhelming determinant of life chances, we must acknowledge that slavery still has a stranglehold on American efforts to achieve true health and national integration, and that its effects continue to be held throughout the world. People of African descent have always struggled against the conditions that slavery imposed and have done so wherever in the world they are found. I focus here on international protest mounted by African Americans. The paper takes its title from Interocean, the name of a Chicago newspaper that in 1894 published columns that Ida B. Wells wrote from Europe. Wells, a noted black feminist and civil rights activist, documented for Windy City readers her second campaign to end lynching by bringing the force of British opinion to bear on atrocities committed in the United States. While historians frequently depict Wells' activities as singular, they were not unique and had distinguished precedents. Historians have often made the mistake of thinking that the subordination of African Americans in the United States meant that they were incapable of thinking beyond their immediate condition and making international linkages and international sense of what was transpiring in other parts of the world. As George Lipsitz has realized, it is not just elite intellectuals who have had an international imagination. Working people whose labor in a global capitalist economy, he writes, brought them into contact with other cultures and have often inflected their own organizations and institutions with international imagery and identification. Let's take a look at states. Um, let's look, take a look first at councils of state. Councils of states have historically provided a forum for international protest. Periods of crisis can frequently open them up for address by unconventional non-governmental actors. This was the case when World War I shattered the balance of power in Europe and destroyed the Russian, German, Ottoman, and Austro-Hungarian empires. These state systems lost control of the diverse ethnic groups previously under their control. Uh, the knowledge of the breakup of the imperial system was not confined to Europeans. Uh, it was in this opportunity space that Marcus Garvey, for example, inserted himself. It was into this opportunity space that uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and others inserted themselves in crafting the Pan-African movement. Right? We very frequently look at 
Pan-Africanism and at Garveyism as movements um, that were singular to African Americans, uh, that in some ways reflected the, uh, the peculiarities of people of African descent. We often do not look at them in the context of the world system. Uh, we do not look at them as demanding the same kinds of language rights, territorial integrity, civil rights, and human rights as were demanded by others who brought their claims to Versailles uh, at the end of World War One. World War Two. Uh, which was more explicitly linked to racial ideology uh, than World War I, led to the creation of another council of state. Right? Uh, the first council of state, uh, the League of Nations, right, uh, was one that was addressed by <coughs> African Americans uh, in, in any event, an attempt was made, I should say, uh, by African Americans to address that conference. President Woodrow Wilson led the United Nations delegation at Versailles. Uh, Wilson saw the peace conference as an opportunity to put the United States permanently at the center of power in the global community. And like other allied leaders, he wished to maintain control over national minorities. He was, additionally, a committed segregationist who did not want minority observers or protesters in Europe. The State Department accordingly refused passports to most of the black Americans wishing to come to France. The mutual interests of the United States, Britain and France, prevented any change in the status of colonized people and racial minorities globally and blocked Japan's efforts to place the principle of racial equality in the charter documents of the resulting League. Certain historians have traced part of Japan's subsequent alienation from the world system during the interwar period to the high-handedness that it experienced at Versailles. Now, um, years later, in the aftermath of World War II, when there was a great deal more knowledge in the world uh, in general about the logical consequences of racism, uh, the uh, activists uh, from the United States included, uh, among many other organizations, uh, people from the NAACP, uh, again began to press the uh, United Nations at the San Francisco Conference in which the charter documents were to be formalized to insert ethnic and linguistic rights in the charter and in other central documents. However, Cold War considerations tainted the deliberations of the Subcommittee on the Prevention of Discrimination and Protection of Minorities, uh, which would be in charge of, of this process. Uh, and many sovereign states proved reluctant to permit international oversight of how they treated their own national minorities. Um, there were no official African-American delegates in the uh, United States delegation to the San Francisco Conference. Uh, the NAACP was the one uh, African-American organization that was allowed to send observers uh, and Du Bois, Mary uh, McLeod Bethune, and Walter White attended as observers. Um, however, um, the historians have uh, tried to make the NAACP the prime mover here. The presence of the NAACP was made possible by the concerted efforts of, an, of many black non-governmental organizations, 
um, that endorse the inclusion of minority rights in charter documents. Yeah. Now, uh, this was a failure. The United Nations uh, was not able at this particular point in time uh, to move on these matters. However, the United Nations continued to be seen as a potentially useful instrument in checking Western abuses of national minorities and colonial subjects. In 1946, um, the National Negro Congress drafted a petition to the United Nations. Uh, it was um, soon after uh, the, uh, the uh, National Negro Congress's petition, the NAACP drafted its own. The difference between the two petitions was this, that the National Negro Congress had charged the United States with genocide. Uh, an extremely powerful claim, particularly in the aftermath of the Holocaust. The NAACP's uh, petition did not uh, allege that the United States had committed genocide against African Americans, but it did ask the UN Commission on Human Rights to investigate racial discrimination in the United States and was supported by hundreds of black organizations across the political spectrum. And I don't mean only the National Urban League or whatnot. I'm talking about labor organizations, uh, nurses, hairdressers, all kinds of people who at this time, again, as Lipset suggests, had an international consciousness and were prepared to act through their lobbyists to get their program on the agenda. Now, once again, uh, these petition drives fail. Uh, pressure applied on the United Nations by the United States, the influence of Eleanor Roosevelt, then um, a UNESCO commissioner, and misgivings among certain leaders about the Cold War implications of proceeding on uh, the petition killed it. Uh, we also need to look at the extent to which the United States dominated the world body at that particular time. Uh, these strategies continued nevertheless, despite these setbacks. Uh, Malcolm X, or Malcolm Shabazz in 1964 revived the strategy of petitioning when he went to not the United Nations this time, but the Organization of African Unity to consider the plight of black Americans. Protest that involved addressing international organizations was problematic when the organization in question was a council of states, because in that kind of body, non-governmental actors have no standing. Um, in these kinds of instances, uh, in the case of both the UN and the Organization of, Af of, of African Unity, um, the organizations were unable to act on petitions sent in. The principal value of the approach, however, um, and its effectiveness should nevertheless not be understated. It was moral and it was propagandistic. Failing to get on the docket might honor an issue in the breach. Now, since I've, got, um, I've received a five-minute notice here, uh, what I'm going to do is um, to skip all the way to the end of this. <laughs> uh, and uh, because I've started talking about international organizations, um, uh, we'll say what I had to say about them at the end. Right? That's this. 
um, was going to move through that through a number of subtopics and begin by talking about the Durban Conference as another historic example of uh, approach to councils of state. Um, the uh, Durban Conference, of course, was a conference that was uh, organized by the United Nations. Uh, the uh, official participants were governments, although there were a number of non-governmental organizations there as, as uh, observers. Right. In 1945, it was exceedingly difficult to make racial discrimination visible to the world's governments. Those governments represented a comparatively small bit of global real estate. By 1978, when the first UN-sponsored World Conference Against Racism was held, member states made up a vastly more diverse body. The states represented at the third World Conference Against Racism in Durban in 2001 nevertheless had to deal with the continued reluctance of those powers whose governments and citizens had engaged in the transatlantic slave trade, in chattel slavery, and other forms of racially based oppression to acknowledge the scope and meaning of their involvement and to move toward making the descendants of victimized communities whole. While Germany apologized for its involvement in the slave trade, and the French Parliament passed a resolution that both the Atlantic slave trade and the Indian Ocean trade in slaves were crimes against humanity, Spain voiced its opposition to apologizing. It chose instead to issue a statement of regret, quote-unquote. Britain, Canada, and the United States also refused to term the slave trade a crime against humanity, all three fearing lawsuits by the descendants of slaves, aboriginal peoples, assorted immigrants, and in the case of Canada, even Cajuns. Numerous governments, notably those in Africa and the Middle East, criticized the stand of these Atlantic powers who were also condemned by many of the non-governmental organizations attending the conference. International protest had reached a new level. It was no longer governmental or non-governmental status that separated the advocates and opponents of reparations. The councils of state of states were divided excuse me, the Council of States was divided within itself on the issue, a division that echoed more present concerns about global inequality and resurrected a discourse about imperialism, now often read globalism, that proponents of the end of ideology had assumed dead and buried. The rhetoric about whether or not Zionism is racism handily helped mask much more important questions and provided an escape hatch for those loath to address them. In the end, September 11th removed the World Conference Against Racism from the radar screens of most Americans and others around the world. The questions raised in Durban, however, remain. In the 1890s, when the Chicago paper Interocean documented Ida B. Wells' anti-lynching mission to Europe, she was alone, although the hopes and support of millions of African Americans accompanied her. By the late 1940s, when the NAACP and the Civil Rights Congress were drafting appeals to the United Nations, black mass organizations were available to underwrite and endorse their efforts. The same associations and others more recently founded demonstrated at Durban by their wide representation the meaning that the problems of slavery and racism have had to African Americans. These organizations are recouping a venerable tradition. One might extend their efforts to address the reparations question, however, by asking if we can indeed limit the legacy of slavery to its direct impact. Surely the Jim Crow, poverty, and injustice that followed slavery are just as much a part of its legacy and in need of remediation.
the continuing need of the world's great powers to create and maintain sources of exploitable labor, moreover, has raised the issue of slavery anew in the 21st century as it rears its ugly head in Asia, Africa, Latin America. African women and children wind up in the kitchens and brothels of Paris and Rome. Brazilian men and women on the farms of the outback in Brazil. These realities refocus attention on black international protest as a vehicle to contest exploitation regardless of the myriad forms it might take and the masks that it might don. Thank you, Professor Plummer, for an international perspective on racism and discrimination. Um, next, we have uh, Professor Richard F. American. Um, he's an executive professorial lecturer uh, at the School of Business at Georgetown University. Uh, he's taught at the business school at the University of California, Berkeley, and at Stanford. He has six books published and, and many articles on management, public policy, and economic development. Uh, one book, uh, Paying the Social Debt, White America Owes Black America, uh, and The Wealth of Races, The Present uh, Value of the Benefits of Past Injustice. Uh, he's now editing a new book on estimating reparations and has just completed a book on unjust enrichment. He has organized and chaired annual sessions on reparations uh, and public policy at meetings of the National Economics Association uh, since 1985. And his work uh, has been the basis for much of the current thinking on reparations as a tool for understanding social policy problems. Uh, uh, Professor America will speak to us on income and wealth uh, transfer effects of discrimination. Uh, let's welcome Professor America. Thank you. Good to be back in California. Uh, the title of the, of the paper that I was assigned is uh, Income and Wealth Transfer Effects of Discrimination, but uh, actually the, the, the short talk I'm going to give uh, probably would best fit in the next session on reparations. Uh, we've had an ongoing project in economists and, and uh, policy analysts uh, under the National Economics Association, which is the professional organization of African-American economists, uh, for almost 20 years now. Every year at our annual meetings, we have uh, a session and papers on some aspect of uh, the economics of reparations, uh, loosely. And what that has come to mean is how do you uh, conduct an analysis and audit a historical audit of the consequences of discrimination. Uh, the point is that discrimination in all its many forms in every sector since 1865 has been a mechanism that has the effect of shifting or diverting or transferring uh, income and wealth from blacks as a class to whites as a class, uh, directly, indirectly, uh, subtly, and not so subtly. Uh, discrimination is, just, is sustained because it is beneficial. There are, of course, non-economic, non-financial, cultural, social motivations as well, but discrimination yields broad class benefits. 
and policymakers need to focus on that or else our urban and social policies will remain less effective than we would like them to be. Uh, just an aside, I think in, in the last panel, Professor Inakori from Rochester, who is a hardcore economic historian who believes in, in data and, and lots of it, uh, was asking, uh, he didn't quite put it this way, but he was really saying, uh, show me the numbers. Where, where are the numbers? And uh, that's what we've been trying to do. We, uh, the idea is that discussing uh, reparations, economic injustice, uh, rhetorically uh, tends to be circular and doesn't really get us anywhere until we get some statistical basis uh, for the claim we uh, will remain uh, stymied. And so uh, the books that were, that were mentioned, uh, The Wealth of Races, uh, is a uh, collection of papers that were presented at those annual meetings from 1985 to 1990, uh, papers by uh, economic historians and specialists in the economics of discrimination. And some of them do attempt at least illustrative uh, estimates of the present value of the stream of income currently from discrimination over the last, and, and slavery over the last 400 years. Uh, and those numbers turn out to be in the, in the trillions, and that work continues. Uh, Professor Alexis has done some, uh, some, uh, some work that we, we hope will be published uh, soon. It puts the value somewhere in the range of 5 to 10 trillion. Uh, and there is room for more refinement and more, uh, more work of, of, of a, an accounting nature. So we continue to research and examine the distressed neighborhoods in any city in the large poor rural areas of the southeast U.S. Uh, what's the reason that so many people are chronically underproductive, poorly housed, undereducated, and seemingly trapped in those circumstances? There's a huge literature, as you know, on poverty, racial inequality, discrimination, social policy, domestic underdevelopment. But none of it fully explains the reasons for these realities. So all of it is flawed, misleading, incorrect, unreliable to some degree as a guide to policy analysis and policy formation and program management. And that's because uh, none of them have been based on a full historical auditing. None have taken full account of the process of unjust enrichment. Uh, they failed to discuss or, in most cases, even acknowledge the way that discrimination has distorted current economic conditions and led to the, the, the continuing uh, gaps in income and wealth, black, white. Uh, we're going to get an update on uh, on. Uh, progress in the last 50 years from Professor Alexis, and I'm sure he's going to uh, show us that the future is, is bright and that the this progress will be a straight line upward. But there still is a, a significant gap, and part of the explanation is uh, 400 years of income and wealth transfer uh, owing to these uh, mechanisms. I want to make six summary quick points. Uh, and the first is in intentionally provocative, but it's sort of the bottom line of all this, and that is that whites owe blacks money. Number two, 
we can understand why and how. Three, we can measure it. In this case, that includes explicitly measuring how discrimination in health care, in housing, in education, uh, and obviously in the labor market and in capital markets, meaning access to commercial credit and mortgage finance primarily, how those operate to enrich whites and uh, disbenefit blacks as, as a class. And uh, the policy implications, the so what to, to that is that we can arrange to have it paid in practical, feasible ways. That's what reparations means to me. Uh, and by doing that, it will help solve those problems in health and housing and education, employment, and community development. And it will make the country stronger. It will uh, uh, bring everyone into uh, productive relationships in the, in the economy, and that will be a benefit to us all, although it will be redistributive from the haves to the have-nots. This, this notion of, of unjust enrichment uh, and reparations in this sense, I believe, is a useful way of looking at these problems uh, with an ultimate concern for full and complete economic justice. And following up on the previous speaker, I believe the same mode of analysis applies internationally. Uh, and in fact, we have a volume coming out on South Africa and another one on Africa. That is, looking at uh, the history of the last 500 years or so uh, as, as quantitatively as possible with all sorts of problems with data and, and the assumptions you have to make to, to work with them. But the point is that our, our aid policies to Africa uh, based on altruism or uh, uh, policy, uh, foreign, foreign policy calculations, especially in the Cold War era, uh, were founded on a shaky foundation, and that uh, uh, basing them on this idea that there is a, an actual quantifiable debt owed to Africa will be a stronger basis for uh, <coughs> transfers of capital from the West to Africa. But however it turns out, uh, and here I'll, I'll put on my uh, conservative hat, there's a requirement that African Americans do the necessary internal development work. Uh, we have the resources and institutions already under our control, unlike you know, 50 years or so ago when we started, uh, when, when the Civil Rights Movement was getting rolling. Uh, we have uh, much of what we need to solve our own problems and develop. That work does not depend on outside resources or agreement. We now have much of what we need to accelerate development for those in the bottom two quintiles of the income and wealth distribution. Now, what do I mean by the word reparations? Uh, there are three levels in, in popular usage. The first is technical, legal, and legislative. How much, how to pay it, how to get a decision to pay it, whether it's in the courts or the legislature or by some sort of uh, executive uh, decision, or all three. The second is a conceptual way that we use the word. Uh, it's a public policy framework, and as, as I was saying earlier. How to understand complex social and policy issues by looking at them through the reparations prism. Uh, the third 
is uh, intangible. And that goes to pain and suffering and cultural losses of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and discriminatory arrangements. Uh, as, as I look at the subject, it, I focus only on the first and the second. Other people focus much more on the third. Uh, but it's important to sort out what we're talking about, however you choose to come out at the end, and to be clear about what we mean by the word. Uh, I got a five-minute warning, and so I think I will, uh, uh, I think I'll end there. Uh, we, we will have plenty of time for, uh, for questions and answers. Uh, but the, the point is that income and wealth discrimination uh, in education, that is, in how uh, we make decisions on expenditures per pupil in public education, uh, K through 12, and in higher education, especially in the dual systems in the South that existed and still exist uh, in universities, um, and in housing, and in employment, and in access to uh, uh, contracts and licenses and grants of all kinds uh, through federal and state and county and local decision makers over the last several hundred years uh, systematically operated to enrich whites disproportionately. And measuring that is, is the, the project that will uh, uh, let us understand discrimination in a way that has policy value. And that means it will lead to redistributive uh, legislation and policy, and that is, uh, is nothing new. We use the tax code, we use the tax system every day to shift income from one industry to another, from one generation to another, from one sector in the country to another. We know how to do that. We do it either explicitly or implicitly all the time. The, the problem here, obviously, is that we are talking about explicitly redistributing income and wealth through the tax and budget process from whites to blacks. That is a notion that is obviously distasteful to many people. It's going to take further debate uh, to uh, bring us as a, a nation to a consensus that that is the right thing to do. I believe that we will get there, but it, it takes a while. Uh, uh, Winston Churchill, I like to to quote a statement that he made uh, when he was getting frustrated with our reluctance to, to come into the war um, in the late 30s, in 1940, he said, uh, well, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they have tried everything else. <laughs> and I, I, think that, I think that is the case also with reparations. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor America, uh, for making foreground for us uh, the need to address the, the instrumentality of ascribed racial group membership uh, in the transfer of uh, wealth between the, uh, the classes in crafting public policy with respect to, to reparations. Um, it's my pleasure to, uh, to uh, introduce you to... Um, uh, Marcus Alexis, uh, 
he's a member of the Board of Trustees and Professor of Economics at Northwestern University. Uh, he's currently a visiting professor of economics at Stanford University. Uh, his publications um, include Assessing 50 Years of African American Economic Status, 1940-1950, and Diversity, Conflict, and State Politics, um, published by the University of Illinois Press. Professor Alexis will speak to us concerning African American Economic Performance, a 50-year report card. Professor Alexis. Shot at him up there. Uh, no, I was going to mention. We kid that. because we love. I, I was going to mention that that you don't have to protect yourself. Uh, Dick America and I go back to 1961 when we were both at the Harvard Business School. Uh, I was a postdoctoral fellow, and Dick was a first-year MBA. Uh, and as a measure of how things were then, as I remember, that I think there were two black. On the, uh, two black students in the Harvard Business School at that time. Harvard Business School then had about 1,200 students uh, in the two classes. Uh, today, Harvard has about 200 black students in the two classes. So that's one indication of how things have changed. Also, Dick and I were colleagues at Berkeley in the late 60s. And he uh, has been after, he had been after me for 30 years to try to get me to do something on reparations, and I had resisted. And he finally caught up with me, embarrassed me is the term, about five years ago to do a paper. And uh, it got me quite interested in the subject. And actually, I just looked at the, my numbers, and the numbers I have, Dick, are not five to, to ten but it's between nine and ten trillion dollars uh, estimate of what the uh, reparations costs are. I know time is short, so let me move on. President Roosevelt used to complain that he couldn't find a one-handed economist. And the reason he said so was because every economist he talked to would always tell him on the one hand and then on the other. <laughs> And I'm afraid that uh, my report card is going to contain some of that. Dick said that I was going to tell you that life was wonderful. And that's part of the duality of the progress that blacks have made because we have some, you may wish to call them a black elite, who are prospering and doing relatively well. And we have another segment in the black population uh, which has had a much more checkered history over the last 50 years. And that history has not exactly been linear, and I'll talk about what has happened. Essentially, what has happened in terms of the economic history uh, of the last 50 years has been that there a period of relatively steady improvement in the relative position of African Americans as a whole between about 1940 
and 19 and, and the middle of the 1970s, a period of about 35 years. And then coming about 1975, 1976, until about the present, there has been a period of either stagnation and in some case retrogression on the part of uh, the progress that blacks have made in closing what is called the racial income gap. Now that story is a little bit more complicated than that because what we have within the black population is that we have a series of groups, if you break, if you disaggregate and look at within groups which we uh, classify by age cohorts. And the analysis is to look at groups of workers, young, that you could take about five groupings, but let me call them young, middle, and older workers. And what you find is that the progress or the uh, changes in relative economic status is different within the groups. Younger groups have tended to have made more progress than the older groups, than the other two older groups. And the reasons that are given for that essentially are that the younger groups have tended to converge in terms of their labor market characteristics and to be more like whites in their age group. So if you take young blacks and young whites, they are more alike in terms of education, in terms of experience, and in terms of skills for which the labor market compensates than will be truer for middle-aged Americans and the least similar would be older Americans. And therefore, if you look at the relative incomes of young, middle, and older black Americans, you will tend to find that the ratio of the income of young blacks to young whites is closer to one, which would be parity, than it is for any of the other two groups. So that is one of the phenomena that we have. For very well-educated blacks, we have seen more progress, but I'm not going to be talking much about them today because, in fact, they represent still a relatively small part of the American uh, economic scene as is relatively black. And public policy has been largely focused on the question of what you might be called the more difficult or left behind groups. Uh, why has it been that some parts of the um, black American working population has had this difficulty in being able to have the labor market characteristics and outcomes that are more similar to other Americans. And let me say that this has even been true uh, in the relatively prosperous period that's been characterized by the 1990s.
though it, in the 1990s, unemployment rates, which is one measure of the performance for blacks, has improved, is, it's been better than it had been any time in the past 30 years. And for the first time in the last 30 years, the unemployment rate of black Americans dropped to single digits. Now that sounds like a great achievement. Uh, it certainly is an improvement over double digits, but unemployment rates for blacks were still above 9% at the same time that the unemployment rate in the nation as a whole also was the best it was in 40 years. And the unemployment rate in black for, the, for the whole U.S. economy in the late 1990s dropped to 4%, the lowest unemployment rate in the industrial world. So it was a period of really spectacular economic achievement, and Bill Clinton was right. It was the economy stupid. Now, when you look, when we tend to look at race and economics, there are two dimensions. And the two dimensions that we tend to think about are segregation and discrimination, and the two are not really the same. Segregation is simply the uh, clustering of people who have similar characteristics, in this case race. The discrimination would be, as we would measure it, would be different outcomes for people who are otherwise equal. That is, so people who have the same productivity characteristics and have different results. So, what we would be looking at is essentially talking more about the aspect of discrimination. And those outcomes are really multidimensional. The three that economists tend to look at most are one, wages or pay. The second is in terms of unemployment, unemployment rates. And the third would be in terms of occupations. And the, 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 they are correlated, but they really are different in many respects. So let me tell you a little bit about what's been going on in the economy, <coughs> excuse me, for, uh, for the last uh, 50 years. After World War II, we had really strong growth in aggregate demand in, in the United States. And this strong growth in aggregate demand had a very positive effect upon the economic performance of black Americans. And that uh, increase in that performance increased from 1940 to 1970. The 1960s were a period of intense, excuse me, the 1980s, however, changed a bit because this was a period of intense international competition for the U.S. market. And this is a statistic, as I, I, it's a question I usually ask in class, what share of the U.S. automobile market did foreign makers have in 1969? The answer was it was less than 10%. If you ask the share of the U.S. automobile market that foreign producers now have, and it is over 30%. 
And so that shows the relative uh, inroads that have been made by international competition. This international competition has affected different industries in different ways. And what we have seen happening in the United States as a result of the international competition and the changes in technology is that there's been a great shift in the United States in the kinds of jobs that we produce. And so if you take a city like Chicago, in Chicago in 1950s, there were 40,000 meatpacking workers. Today there are none. As late as the 1970s, there were 25,000 steel workers in Chicago. Today there are about 3,000. So you add that together, and that's about 65,000 jobs, which were well-paying, relatively unskilled labor jobs that went to what we would call the working class or blue-collar jobs that are gone from the Chicago labor market. They have been replaced by about 80,000 jobs in finance. Chicago has become a leading market for dealing in futures, options, and currencies. These jobs pay very well, but require high levels of specialized education. And for the most part, minorities have been much underrepresented in, that, in, in those kinds of jobs. Manufacturing in the United States has been in a secular decline for at least 40 years. And by that I mean the percentage of jobs in the United States in manufacturing has been on a steady decline. Americans consume more manufactured goods now than they ever did. They just don't make them. They buy them from overseas. The VCR was an American invention. There's not a single American, there's not a single VCR produced in the United States. One of the largest exporters of the, in the United States, one of the largest export products in the United States is software. If you look at the three of the largest exporters in the United States, they are General Electric, Boeing, and Microsoft. Well-paying blue-collar jobs used to be in steel and automobiles. We now produce twice as many automobiles with about half as much labor. And the same thing is true in steel. One of the effects of the recession of 1981-82 in a place like Chicago again was it devastated blue-collar workers and they have never recovered from the recessions of 1981 and 1982. Those Americans, particularly black workers in Chicago. And that is, and Chicago is not, uh, is not unique. And if you look in cities that had high manufacturing, excuse me, like Pittsburgh, which are now software capitals, it has changed dramatically the nature of work. 
when you, what we saw, I told you about the young people. In 1940, an 18-year-old black entering the labor market, young black man, most of this is about black men. We're now beginning, and the session before was very interesting about women and the slavery of women, because not very much had been done about the economics of women, period, and virtually none about the economics of black women. But, and the economics of black women is very interesting and different than black men. Because if you looked at black women with the same skills as white women, the reverse was true of what was for black men. Black women tended to make at least as much as the white women. Now, what, what, where's the mystery? Well, one of the mysteries had been because black women tended to have more job seniority. What labor market economists called stronger labor market attachments. But that situation is now even becoming un unwrapped. Because as more white women, particularly well-educated white women, enter into the labor market, they are beginning to erode the position of black women. And it may very well be that some of the lack of progress that well-educated black men have been making, because one of the groups that has been hard hit by the events since 1970s has been young, college-educated black men. That is, the relative earnings of young, college-educated black men and employment rates have dropped relative to whites. The same thing is true for young black women. The, the people doing the best in the labor market now are educated older black women who have been in the labor market for longer periods of time. And so this market is composed like the American economy is not just one single cloth, but it's made up of many different patches. And to understand what is happening to blacks in the labor market today, you have to be uh, looking at these little discrete patches. One last thing, and then I'll sit down. What we also know is we look at the market and people are doing what are called micro-studies, the way in which jobs are filled. And we have now know that employers, you know, what do employers look for in a worker? And that certain characteristics of young blacks uh, will uh, discourage employment. One of those is an inner city address. A second one, I mean, some of these aren't too surprising. Uh, a second one is going to a public inner city high school. And there are differences in the success rates of young black high school graduates from parochial or suburban schools over what we have in inner city schools. Also, what has been called some field experiments have been tried where we have sent young blacks and young whites with the same characteristics, the same experience, and they've been trained to answer questions the same way. And the offers for jobs that have gone to the young whites are three times as high as they've gone to the young blacks. 
And so what we know is that the inner workings of what we call the internal labor market does not function the same for blacks and whites. And so a combination of things, competition, foreign competition, the change in the supply of women, particularly white women in the labor market, and continuing levels of discrimination and less vigorous enforcement of some civil rights laws have worked negatively against the younger and the blue collar segment of the black labor market. And my time is up, but I'll be glad to answer any questions later. Professor Alexis, I really appreciate you sensitizing us to the um, subtle and sophisticated nature of bifurcation uh, in the uh, economic status of black America and its link um, to the dramatic transformation of the economic base of this country from industrial manufacturing to communication information technologies. Um, now I have another presentation. It's, it's my uh, great pleasure to present one of our own uh, here at uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, professor, professor G. Reginald Daniels, uh, professor in the Department of Sociology here at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Uh, he has uh, been a particularly active researcher uh, in the area of race and ethnic relations as well as cultural analysis. Um, uh, his books uh, include More Than Black, Multiracial Identity, and The New Racial Order, uh, published by Temple University Press, and uh, Converging Paths, um, Race Relations in Brazil and the United States. Uh, Professor Daniel uh, will speak to us concerning White into Black, the Politics of Race and Identity in Contemporary Brazil. Professor Daniel. Based on the uh, last presentation, I feel somewhat at a disadvantage because I do not have a lot of data uh, in terms of quantitative material, uh, but I do want to present some sort of overview, which will have to be abbreviated simply because of the short time framework in terms of some important uh, developments that have taken place in Brazil, particularly contemporary Brazil, as in the 90s, but also that have begun as early as the 1970s. And I know that there is at least one other person in here who does work on Brazil, and so anything that I miss, I'm certain he'll be able to fill in for me. I'm going to kind of break it down into three sections, and because you can never assume that everybody in the United States has knowledge about Brazil. And in fact, I think talking about Brazil to audiences in the United States is like going through an episode of the Twilight Zone, because in many ways it's very different from the United States and also it's very similar and originates in the same kind of power structure uh, that emerged with European global domination beginning at least in the 15th century. Uh, but the first section is called uh, Black into White, which is sort of taken from the title by historian Thomas Skidmore who wrote a, an exhaustive account of Brazilian uh, policy and in terms of immigration and also social policy in terms of how to deal with what they call the Negro problem. The United States had a very different way of dealing with the same issue, but one of Brazil's ways of resolving it is if you no longer have black people, you cannot have a black problem. 
Uh, so there was a way of resolving it by essentially making people vanish from the social landscape. The black consciousness movement that emerged in the 1970s has tackled that issue and has moved Brazilian uh, racial discourse, if not actual the racial order in Brazil in a new direction. And the most recent battle has taken place in terms of the collection of data on the census. So that's what I'm going to try to lay out in about five minutes each section. One of the things I think that's really key to point out is that the historical formation of race in Brazil is somewhat different um, and has essentially given rise historically to the notion that Brazil was a racial democracy. And it was only in the 1950s when UNESCO went to Brazil to collect actual quantitative data after the bloodbath of the Second World War to try to find out how was it that Brazil managed to solve the race problem so easily and maybe we can learn something. Well, when they went to Brazil, they found out quite a few surprises. But the origin of this notion that Brazil is a racial democracy has always uh, emerged in comparison to the United States. It's almost impossible to not talk about the comparative dimension because how the two nations differ has often been the way Brazil has defined itself. And I would think that there are four at least four ingredients. One is, is that there has been pervasive uh, racial and cultural blending, meaning that um, outside of perhaps Nigeria and Ghana, there are more people in Brazil with West African slave ancestry than anywhere else on the planet. That said, not all of those people acknowledge that ancestry. In fact, a significant number do not. Those who do, do not necessarily see themselves as what we would say black and say the same terms that African Americans do. So it's really very different in terms of the rendering of racial categories and the premises of those. In the United States, ancestry has historically been the primary criterion based on the one-drop rule. Then anyone with any African-American ancestry is an African-American. And I would say that logistically, any discussion about reparations really poses some serious challenges there in the sense that w what impact will this be on people who are currently socially identified as European-American but who want to check their genealogy for African slave ancestry? Because certainly the opportunistic possibilities are, are not, should, should not be underestimated. And how definitions will be used to define who African Americans are and who reparations are to be distributed will be very key, I think, in terms of maintaining the authenticity, shall we say, or the, the integrity of the whole process. In Brazil, that is extremely complicated because reparations have also been discussed. But if you use the United States definition of race, uh, it becomes much more complicated. The, currently designated population of people who are officially self-identified as African-Brazilian, which would include people that Brazilians call multiracial people as well as black-identified people, is about 46%. The people who identify themselves are, so are socially designated as white Brazilians are about 54%, and that's always been that Brazil has a white majority. But if you ever go to Brazil and you see people on the street, you can see Africa everywhere. It's on the people's faces. It's in the food. It's everywhere. And so to have African ancestry in Brazil does not preclude a person identifying as racially white. Uh, also, the question is, is why is that the case? And part of Skidmore's argument is, is there's this sort of spontaneous rejection of blackness and that the Brazilian racial state has encouraged European immigration at various points in its history to essentially bleach, bleach out the black peril. Also, there has been a tendency of people to recode themselves on the census with a category that is somewhat perhaps lighter 
uh, than their physical appearance might indicate. This flexibility with racial categories and identity is one of the things that the black consciousness movement has tried to tackle. But aside from that, this flexibility historically has led to the notion, well, since everybody is all mixed anyway, we can't have any racism here because everybody's already connected in some way with some sort of African ancestry, so it's a class problem. And that if you get enough money, then that essentially whitens you. And there was, for, for longer periods of time, not any question as well, why do you have to say money whitens? Why is that the issue? Um, there was also the argument that because Brazil has never experienced anything like legalized segregation as the United States in the post-slavery period, uh, like Jim Crow segregation, that that was some of the kinder, gentler uh, race, his, his formation of race as compared to the United States. Another part of this notion of racial democracy is the large number of African genuine, and when I say genuine, I mean things that almost look like they were just the net yesterday uh, brought in from West Africa of African cultural survivals in terms of religion particularly, uh, popular culture particularly. Um, and the argument was, was, was that because the Portuguese were nicer than those old cold English Protestants and that they allowed Africans to maintain their culture. All of this, of course, has been dismantled. But these are some of the arguments. And this sort of manifests itself par excellence in Carnival, which is this great celebration of the great mixture of the nation. Um, and the, the, everyone is sort of challenging all kinds of boundaries, and in some ways challenging hard, because you can't tell who's what anymore. Uh, there's this frenzy, and this is sort of Brazil's celebration of itself, particularly to tourist dollars. They're coming to watch this. Um, as the great racial democracy. Well, that was the image that remained for, for, for quite a long period of time after slavery, uh, which was abolished in 1888. And it wasn't until UNESCO went uh, to Brazil to collect the data, and they found out, well, while indeed racial categories are not quite as fixed as they are in the United States, there's no such thing as the one-drop rule. And yes, you do have a more inclusive definition of racial whiteness in Brazil than in the United States, where you can actually have African ancestry and also racial identifies white. That there was a correlation between economic uh, outcomes and physical appearance. And that the more phenotypically uh, one was thought to be of West African ancestry, the lower one was in the socioeconomic structure. And that the higher you went up, the lighter the skin. Well, that's the same thing as in the United States, essentially. So there's a, there's a similarity there. The difference is, is that there are people in Brazil who socially identify as white uh, and are accepted as such who in the United States could not even do that and would probably not choose to do that because uh, the, the, the social construction of blackness in the United States, which has, which has encompassed people that cover an entire physical spectrum, uh, spectrum but who have African-American ancestry. Um, this research continued into the 1960s, and it kind of began to unravel this notion that class was far more important than race. While race categories were not ancestrally based, as the United States, they did have a very significant um, impact on life chances, and that, uh, that these could not simply be reduced to class analyses, that in fact, if that was the case, you would have found a more random distribution throughout the class structure. In fact, you do not find that. You find that people of visible African ancestry are concentrated in the lower echelons. And while a few exceptional individuals are able to move up vertically, there are individuals that are doing this. It is not en masse. And so uh, the argument began to shift that perhaps Brazil was not a racial democracy after all, and people were beginning to argue this was another form of social control that the elite had constructed in order to deflect attention from racial issues and also to, uh, shall we say, 
not only downplay the significance of roles, but race, but make it less viable to mobilize around issues of race. And if there is no racial problem, then you're creating one by talking about it. And when the research was really becoming the most cutting edge, of course, the military dictatorship in 1964 took over and pretty much said, we have no racial problem, why are you doing this research on it? And so it became very much unacceptable. In fact, you could, your life could be jeopardized. Many people were self-exiled. Other people were removed from the universities who were doing research on race relations. Many came to the United States. Abdias do Nascimento, who was a, an activist whose life spanned many, many years back to the 30s with the formation of the Black Experimental Theater. Uh, the military actually held on desperately to the myth of racial democracy because it needed it even more under the military rule to quell any kind of upheaval uh, from below to challenge the racial order. So I mean there was really strong military control. And even though you could argue that the United States may have some de facto kinds of uh, military apparatus that kind of patrol and control uh, racial behavior. If you have not ever lived in a society where you have really tanks and police with, with um, weapons on the street. It's just a completely different experience. Uh, and so people were intimidated. People didn't talk about race. There was no discussion. You couldn't even, couldn't even uh, 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 organize based on that. Well, the black consciousness movement in the 1970s began to unravel this entire myth with new research collecting uh, data, quantitative data, showing the incredible disparity. And while there's this tradition that somehow another being a multiracial person in Brazil gave a person an incredible edge over someone who was designated black. They were showing that the divide in Brazil between those who were white and those who were African Brazilian was the big divide and only secondarily between people who were designated as multiracial. Around the same time there was a, research, uh, a sort of a, an, a growth of a lot of popular expressions validating African Brazilian cultural expression, some borrowing from the United States in the 1970s called Black Soul. There was also a re-Africanization of Carnival, which previously had been used to perpetuate the myth of racial democracy, now began to challenge it. Reggae, rap music have all had an incredible music on popular music in Brazil. Um, the political dimension has such that that the movement that emerged in the late 70s has tried to gain greater black clout in the, the, the electoral process. But that's extremely difficult because people do not necessarily vote along racial lines and they've had a very difficult time doing that. The biggest problem though is finding out who the constituents are and the census debate has been part of that because they argued that the collection of data and the categories in the census are not neutral. They are a way of perpetuating an image of the nation as a racial democracy. And so what they've tried to do is get fewer people to identify themselves as multiracial and instead identify themselves as black or African Brazilian. And they've had an uphill battle because that may not match the reality of a lot of people's experiences, but even more important, getting the kind of governmental support around discussions affirmative action reparations is extremely difficult. So I would argue that while the issue of politics and identity in Brazil is much more visible, there is a greater discussion of it being a nation of a multicultural uh, phenomenon rather than this notion of, of unity. There are glossy magazines, Casa Negra, which we just got in the library here, thanks to Sylvia Curtis, that uh, was sort of a combination between Essence and Ebony, and you can say what you want about those two magazines. But um, there is this visibility of blackness in ways that has historically not happened in Brazil, and yet the practical implications of this transformation have not actually been thought out and have only begun 
And I would close by saying that what's important about Brazil and throughout the, the Americas is that it's not that people of African descent are in third-class citizenship in the United States, but throughout the Americas. And that the importance of this conference showing that hemispheric um, analysis not only points out that the, the current situation of people of African descent is not just the result of slavery and the lingering effects of past purposeful uh, discrimination, but contemporary policies that continue to reinforce that kind of reality. And so any move in that direction um, is going to have to take into consideration the wider ranging consequences. Anyone who has any questions, and I know that um, there's another individual, like I said, who has done research on Brazil, I'd be more than happy to answer them. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Daniels. I, I really appreciated uh, uh, getting a, a greater sensitivity to the international and, and the his, hemispheric relevance uh, of the black problem and how it's manifested itself in, in Brazil, and in particular the complexities of the social, political, and psychological um, um, uh, um, aspects of the definition and designation of black. Um, uh, it's a it's also my pleasure now to, to, to bring to your front our moderator, uh, not our moderator, our commentator. I said, I'm the moderator. Uh, uh, um, uh, Eileen Boris, who is uh, the Hall Professor of Women's Studies, 14-year member of the History Department of Howard University, uh, uh, teaching, writing, um, uh, researching uh, 20th century, century uh, U.S. history, uh, currently writing a book on citizens on the job, uh, race, gender, and rights in modern America, World War II to the present. Um, Professor Voris. It's a real honor to have this opportunity to say a few remarks, to participate in this historic conference, and to initiate a conversation with people whose work I've long appreciated. So thank you very much. Thank you, Doug, and everyone else here. These papers uh, recall to me the decoration of Gordon P. P. Hancock of Virginia Union University, made in the midst of the struggle for equal pay for black school teachers under Jim Crow in Virginia on the eve of World War II. And Professor Hancock said, and he was writing in the local newspaper, the Norfolk Journal and Guide. It is true that man cannot live by bread alone, but it is also true that he cannot live and be great without bread. Or as Baptist minister, Reverend D.C. Rice of Norfolk announced, the real battle will not be won until the last man I'd add man and woman, is assured of the opportunity of work, live to live and enjoy the benefits of the freedom of opportunity, which is the inalienable right of every citizen of the United States of America. Purchasing power, as various don't buy where you can't work campaigns had demonstrated throughout the 1930s, provided a lever against discrimination. Increasing the po that power could only strengthen the lever. 
While historians long have dismissed such calls for economic betterment or economic nationalism as conservative in light of the fight for desegregation, there's a kind of theological history uh, that the road to Brown encompasses the entire civil rights movement. Well, if you were living in Virginia, in Norfolk, Virginia in 1939, you wouldn't see what you were doing as a step on the road to Brown. You'd see it as a step of community economic development. You'd see it as civil rights, as economic rights. So a new generation of scholarship, I would argue, which these papers deepen, is rehistoricizing the movement for civil rights. And this is not only in terms of the expansion in time and place of location here and abroad, in the boardrooms and in international forums. This is not only in the connection to the histories of colonialism and imperialism, of capitalism and identity formation, but it is also in terms of the histories of labor and work. That is, civil rights as economic rights. America and Alexis have documented the economic impact of discrimination during, and I'm going to quote from uh, Gail Plummer's paper, Brenda Gail Plummer's paper, that it's not only during slavery, but during the era of Jim Crow, poverty and injustice that followed slavery, as Plummer puts it. These are as much a part of the legacy and the need of remediation. And Daniels, of course, complicates our understanding through a comparative perspective that emphasizes not only culture, but also the significance of class and the role of the state in those definitions of economy and class. So in light of today's discussion of reparation, it seems particularly important to return to the notion of economic citizenship, that the unfolding of the legal battle against segregation as civil <laughs> rights has eclipsed in our scholarship. How many remember that the call in 1964 was for jobs as well as for freedom. Given the construction, I would argue, of the New Deal welfare state around an individual's relation to and position within the labor market, African-American women and men, migrants from the Americas and Asia, Native Americans dispossessed on reservations, and even some white women, became relegated to lesser status because of their location in the worlds of waged and unwaged labor. I think it's really important, Professor Alexis's notion of his emphasis on the structural changes in the economy, where one works, in what sector, and the meaning of that sector. We all know, yeah, Unemployment might have been down, but how many jobs were people working to make a living wage? One uh, comment often is that African-American men in particular got on the gravy train, that is, of unionized jobs when deindustrialization hit urban areas. And the very laws that were created to protect labor rights seem to be racially neutral, seem to be gendered neutral, seem to be racialized gendered neutral, but in fact compounded the injuries of wealth or its lack. We should not, because 
They excluded the jobs, again, the location that most men and women of color and some white women were in. So the work of domestic service, of all sorts of care work, of people who worked in jobs that were not involved in interstate commerce, agricultural labor, all were outside of the law. We should not forget that Charles Hamilton Houston, often seen as the brains before that NAACP strategy of the road to Brown, was also the lawyer for fair representation of black railroad men by the fair representations on the part of the unions as well as on the companies, that he challenged economic injustice no longer than school, no less than school segregation. For Houston, the Social Security Act of 1935 was, as he put it, a sieve with holes just big enough for the majority of Negroes to fall through. Or as Ralph Bunch reminded his contemporaries, the traditional racial stereotypes which have been inherited from the master-slave tradition and which have been employed by the ruling class of large landholders in the South and industrialists in the North to give effective expression to their determination to keep the Negro in a servile condition and a profitable labor supply remain and were heightened by the New Deal. Indeed, Bunch and other leftist intellectuals at Howard University in the early 1930s, like Abraham Harris, saw in militant action by the black masses an alternative to the legal litigation that came to dominate anti-discrimination efforts. It is in the double V campaign the fall during World War II that reminds us of the link between, as A. Philip Randolph put it, the fight against fascism and empire over subject peoples abroad and against Jim Crow and white supremacy at home. And Brenda Plummer highlights these connections and reminds us of the global imagination of diasporic Africans in America. She provides us with a long view, and I had the benefit of reading her very rich paper, emphasizing the international and geopolitical dimension of the freedom struggle from the very beginning. The efforts of black leaders to use the UN from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to the World Congress Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance. That is, to use international human rights law, reiterates, reminds us, the U.S. racism is an international issue and cannot be hidden under the notion of state sovereignty. And we at uh, UCSB recently heard uh, critical race feminist Lisa Crooms uh, discuss how people are continuing trying to use international human rights law in this regard. The anti-discrimination law that Congress passed out of that 64 March in response to the civil rights struggle substituted individual rights, albeit based on belonging to a group, to a covered category, for economic development and community self-determination. Rights talk offered an opportunity, but a restricted one, when group demands became translated into individual cases for a legal system that remained uncomfortable with collective remedies. But these papers suggest that economic wrongs born from racism and discrimination against a people indeed require collective effort. I want to close with uh, just a couple of brief comments on what I just heard and then with two quotes. 
I was particularly interested in Professor America's emphasis here on the redistributive possibility of reparations, the giving from the haves to the have-nots. And I want, because some of the writing has seen that reparations appears as a stocking horse for black capitalism, and so what the question is, who are the have-nots, and how do we define productive relation to the economy? Whose definition of what is productive relations? Does this mean we revalue all kinds of work, including the care work, including those service jobs that currently are low paid? Do we make those service jobs paid the real worth? Imagine how any of our workplaces would function if the people who come in in the evening when we are gone and clean up didn't come. They're the ones who should be paid. We should pay more for people who clean toilets than some of the people who, who drop bombs. I also would like to emphasize from Professor Alexis's work the importance of occupational segregation by sex and how that impacts <coughs> racial wealth or lack of wealth. These are interlocking systems. And so I want to close with two quotes from women, from black women who struggled in the late 1960s as members of the National Welfare Rights Organization, whose voices, I'm afraid, have been lost in our discussion. Those who were mothers who wanted income and dignity more than anything else. Listen to Johnny Tillman. The problem is that our country's economic policies denied the dignity and satisfaction of self-sufficiency to millions of people, the millions who suffer every day in underpaid, dirty jobs and still don't have enough to survive. Or as her, and she was in, um, from Mothers of Watts, and then a Bernice Sanders who was in New York City, I think sums it up. Everybody in this country has a right to share this wealth. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Borders, very much. Um, uh, we, we have a few minutes, and we uh, want to go directly to questions, comments for the, for the, for the uh, panelists here. Yes, up front here. No, you. you. <laughs> oh. Uh, my, first of all, I want to uh, congratulate uh, all the members of the panel. Uh, this has been very great. I learned so much uh, from all the presentations. I, 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 I would want to uh, ask everyone a question, but I can't do that, so I'm going to uh, address my question to Dr. Daniel. Uh, when I got to uh, Brazil for the first time uh, in 1988, uh, I was so surprised uh, to find that I couldn't see any black man in a position of responsibility. I looked through the airport. I looked at the banks. I went to the University of Sao Paulo with 45,000 students, and there were only three black faculty, one of whom was from Zaire. 
And unconsciously, in all of the discussions in which I participated, I became uh, the United States ambassador somehow, unconsciously, without knowing, uh, comparing uh, what I find in the U.S. with uh, what I saw in uh, Brazil. Uh, so my question is this. Uh, how come uh, the Portuguese uh, were so successful in suppressing the blacks <coughs> at very little cost to the whites? when the U.S. couldn't do that uh, the way yet the Brazilians uh, have, been, have, have done it? That's my question. That's a, a powerful question and a difficult one to answer with a soundbite, but, and I don't mean to trivialize it by saying that. Um, I would argue that one key factor that, that, that shouldn't be underestimated is, is that just the way blackness is defined in the United States has, for, for whatever difficulties it may have brought about, has led to at least a sense of community despite internal diversity and, and conflict. Uh, there was no, there has historically in this country not been much ambiguity about blackness, largely because of the one drop rule. Which means that no matter what a person looks like, no matter what their class background, no matter what their gender, sexual orientation has been African-American identified. That cohesiveness should not be underestimated. It has been enforced by laws and segregation, but out of that has come a sense of community. There, we can question whether that will, there, that will remain as clearly defined in this century, but it has been the historical force behind the formation of the civil rights movement, black leadership, historically black colleges, all of that. It, it, it was a, a part of the segregationist well, actually, one of our early panels had a different definition of segregation. Let's say Jim Crow, and yet in response to that, out of that has emerged a sense of community. In Brazil, just the whole definition of blackness is so funny so that a lot of those people that you saw who were white-skinned have African ancestry but don't identify with it. The people who are visibly, distinguishably of West African ancestry have, shall we say, been left on the margins largely because people who may have formed part of a larger cohesive black community in Brazil don't identify as being black or even part black in some cases. And so just the numbers are reduced. There's a tendency to, for people to be, shall we say, siphoned off that might be potential leaders uh, and sort of not be part of this larger African-Brazilian constituency. The I would argue that assimilation is a perfect way of social control. It creates the illusion of power sharing without the people at the top giving up control by allowing a few token folks to bubble up. Whereas apartheid, which we had here, does not historically allow that. And we currently see that in the positioning of sort of showcase African-Americans in positions of power in various parts of the country uh, to create the illusion of increased equality. There are very few African-Brazilians elected officials, maybe 20 or 30 uh, in the Congress, uh, in terms of professor, professors. So African-Americans actually in terms of socioeconomic indicators, political representation, are far more included in the quote-unquote mainstream of society than in Brazil, but that has come out of a completely dis historical formation of race. In Brazil, the truncation of racial categories has made knowing who's in and who's out in terms of the community who's part of the struggle much more, much more complicated and therefore has made the numbers. Only 6% of Brazilians are considered to be black. And yet if you go there, you see African ancestry up to the president, down to the domestic who's cleaning his toilet, so to speak. And yet, so, and yet there may not be any connection between him and her in terms of their struggle, 
because his positioning is as a white man and hers is not. So I would argue it's the fuzziness of categories that may, has made it easier for the elite to maintain control by co-opting people as new insiders. Brazil for the first time about 10 years ago. I went to Vargas University in uh, Sao Paulo, which is the business school, and I happened to be at a lunch or a dinner, and we were talking, and race came up. I was the only black professor at this conference, and the, one of the people sitting at the table uh, was a woman, uh, blonde, white, and she, we're talking, I said, how come race, same question you raised, and she said, I'm black. I said, you what? She said, I'm black. <laughs> she, said, uh, she said, I'm a black Polish Jew. She said her mother, the family emigrated from Poland, running away from Hitler, and came, and her mother was a student and married a black student who is a, was a professor also, professor of chemistry, and I think the point is, I would never have called that woman black in the United States. So that's part of the assimilation kind of thing. I think on this, the second part of the question you raised when we talked about a black elite in the United States, though it's different. So I would take exception to the, to, to, the, uh, to the observation that black elite have no power. Now, uh, if you, you know, whatever one may think about Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell in terms of our foreign policy arrangements, uh, if they don't have power, they certainly have a lot of influence. But certainly in the corporate scene, which is another area, when you have a black CEO, a CEO of a major corporation, no matter what he articulates, exercises tremendous kinds of power in terms of the kinds of people <clears throat> that, and the way the resources of that corporation are used. Who you hire as your law firm, who does your auditing, uh, what kinds of messages are sent within. Uh, I happened to be on the board of Teachers Insurance and had a black CEO, Cliff Wharton, and I was on the board when Cliff came, and I can tell you that it makes a substantial difference. So it's easy to take people, some, there are some tokens, but there are some very subtle, uh, substantive uh, executives of color who make things happen as well. No, 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 I was really referring to the comment that he made about, the, you know, that we have more tokens in the United States, but we also have some real power, I think. It's on. No. Basically looking at uh, employment, at labor market and capital market and housing market uh, processes. Go ahead. Oh. Thank you. Uh, I have another question for Dr. Daniel. Uh, I very much appreciate your summation of 
these racial fantasies that people from Da Cunha to Gilberto Frey and other uh, Brazilian nationalists have of what Brazil represents and its people and the power of outside description on people's identity. Uh, and one question that came to my mind when you were discussing the so-called multiracial people and how they're ascribed in census data is uh, how you see this, whether it is at all connected to what others, I'm, I'm thinking of Jonathan Warren's recent book, have seen as a tremendous growth in people who all of a sudden are beginning to ascribe to a, an indigenous identity in Brazil, a voice that um, has very much been marginalized in 20th century thinking of what Brazil represents. If you could just touch on that very briefly. In fact, in relationship to that book, one of the things that's fascinating about all of those people who are identifying as indigenous, if you look at their photographs, they also have West African ancestry. And in fact, I find it really kind of fascinating that they're not embracing that even in conjunction with their indigenous ancestry, which doesn't mean that they don't have the right to do that. But I mean, there has been this history in Brazil of Native American and indigenous ancestry trumping African ancestry. And so that when I see people who I know for certain, just visually, without having to look at anything else, clearly indicate to my eyes that they may have a connection with West African slave ancestry and they're calling themselves indigenous, uh, which doesn't say they don't have the right to do it, but I want to talk with them and ask them what the reason for this is and why they don't actually embrace both. Even, and these people, particularly in Bahia, where Native Americans, at least the original indigenous people, died off very early. They have no cultural remnants. I'm not saying they should, but their indigenousness is this what he calls post-traditional indigenous identity. And when you have African ancestor and you call it post-traditional, I want to know what you did with the African part. And so I have some issues with that argument, frankly. <laughs> there, there was a hand. Uh, in, yes, I have the microphone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pass it. Amen. Yeah, I'm, I'm Reverend Ford, and I had a question for uh, Professor America. Uh, you were talking about the reparations, and you'll notice that uh, through the church in the last 10 years, there's been an effort uh, to draw uh, African Americans and white Americans into a fold via reconciliation. You've heard that term, uh, reconciliation of hearts, minds, and souls. Uh, and the church has sort of em embraced that where uh, denominations have come together uh, over the past years who once had separated themselves. But there's also a movement now, and I guess it gives rise to what you've been saying, and, and this is more of a statement, I guess, than a question I just asked for your comment, where we're saying now that uh, there can be no reconciliation without compensation. And, and, and we're sort of pushing that effort uh, right now. It's good to feel good, but we want to do good. And so I was just wondering what your comment would be uh, on that. Well, I don't want to get on the wrong side of the Lord one way or the other. Here, so. uh, but, now, uh, uh, I'm focused on public policy. Uh, the idea is that uh, doing serious historical auditing uh, is, is unavoidable to make rational policy. Uh, and if the church lends its, its weight to that process, then uh, that's fine. My own view, though, is that the church's competitive advantage is in helping people understand the message, the word, 
And frankly, I think the church has a lot of internal work to do to improve how it does that. Uh, and and might, it might be a, a good idea to do a better job uh, on the primary mission. But uh, to the extent that, that the religious leaders want to get involved in public policy discussions, then obviously I welcome them on the side of pressing for uh, redistributive justice uh, reparations. Yeah, well, I, I did get the, the, the hint of our accountability sometimes has been wavering uh, over the years, and we hope to do better uh, in the future. <laughs> well, it's a, uh, this is a whole other uh, conference probably, but what uh, uh, Professor Alexis alluded to, distinctions between black Catholic performance, black Protestant performance, there has been some work on that. And for whatever reasons, there is, seems to be a discipline in Catholicism and liturgical approaches to religious life that contributes to success in a modern economy. Uh, he was resp uh, talking specifically about schools, but there have been studies that, that Catholicism per se, not just attendance at, at Catholic schools, uh, leads to uh, greater achievement. Uh, measured in secular terms. Something to think about, something to really think about, actually. Has the microphone already been handed to... Okay. Oh, I just wanted to comment on, on, on that kind of language, uh, reconciliation, redemption, uh, because those, those became very powerful political terms uh, during the Reconstruction, uh, where it where the issue of reparations should have come up in terms of redemption because this, this was a political term, not a religious term during the Reconstruction. Uh, and, and instead of moving in that way, what happened in Reconstruction is that people got tied up with this reunion thing. Uh, of bringing the North and South back together again. And uh, this whole symbolic thing of having uh, these camp meetings with old veterans of the South and the North together instead of doing the work which, in that sense, was a political term, redemption, even though it came out of a kind of theological linguistic category. So the, the, the whole issue of reparations harks back to uh, that period of Reconstruction uh, where the language was also used like redemption, which had to do with the material economic meaning of what that war was about. Can I just say one thing about that? Uh, among the people who are critics of reparations, uh, one of the things that they fear is closure on this whole question that uh, once the United States or you know, the, the general public feels that African Americans have been quote unquote paid back, then there is no continuing work to do. And it seems to me that that's something that uh, you know, people who are in favor of addressing this issue need to consider very carefully. Well, the objective of reparations, is, 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 as I see it, is, is parity by a date certain. So I would guess in about two generations, about 40 years, median family income, black and white, median family wealth should be roughly equal. 
If that's the case, then the, the matter is essentially, for all practical purposes, taken care of. That means that people have the resources and uh, the skill sets to uh, function effectively. Uh, so if we pay reparations in the form of housing equity, business equity, and quality education for the next two generations, and if it has the result of, in fact, uh, eliminating those, those observable gaps, then the problem is solved. Now, there still might be non-economic issues out there, uh, but uh, the economic piece will have been, in fact, eliminated. I'd like to take one or two more questions. Yes. Good afternoon. Um, perhaps the question, can you hear me? Perhaps the question is not if, but when, and how much, but most importantly, who's going to do the negotiation? Uh, we, we need to go back to history. Forty years ago, the biggest sound all over the world in the United States to start with was civil rights. On the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, it was independence for Africa. And those two went side by side, and they both foiled each other to the extent that the cry for independence foiled the, uh, the energy that we needed for civil rights and vice versa. Today, what we're talking about is reparation for African Americans in the United States, and now Africans are asking for reparation. So we're, we're doing exactly the same thing. The question now is who is going to negotiate for what? Well, I mentioned work that's been done on estimating the value of income and wealth expropriated from Africa. And that, and there's an even wider range there, but the work is still very early, somewhere between 3 and $30 trillion present value. And if that is refined, and if it stands scrutiny and challenge, uh, it could be a solid basis for World Bank and UN and other kinds of, of uh, policy on capital transfers to Africa for development. Okay, one last question. I... Is the mic here? Oh, wherever the mic is. Just a very brief question for um, Professor um, Alexis. Many times I feel very young and some days I feel kind of old. When you described the differences in workers, you said younger and older. And I'm not clear. Maybe everybody else knows the age breakdown you were thinking about, but I, I would like a little help with that. Where, where, where were you cutting off for younger workers, middle workers, older workers? Well, generally we think about it in terms of... Uh, <clears throat> of experience levels, which would correlate with age, typically. So you'd say somebody, and the young workers would be people with less than 10 years of job experience, which would tend to be workers under 30. And you think about people with, let's say, uh, 20 years of experience, that'll put workers around 40. And if you think about other people with 35, 40 years experience, they'll give you workers in the 50 to 68 group. If you take, now obviously we have, the, the way that, the data is, is, is calculated. We have it by smaller gradations than that, but I didn't want to 
take over the whole seven or eight categories. In general, that, that, those are the three. That, so if you think about young workers would be people generally enter the, the labor force now at about age, six, age 18. Uh, most now even young blacks are graduating from high school nationally. Over half of young blacks go to graduate from high school. So they enter the labor force after high school or those who are after post-secondary school. So that's the starting point. And most people are now out of the labor market sometime uh, either in between the late 50, their late 50s and by the time they're 70. Then there's some fools like me who just keep on working. <laughs> Okay, we want to thank uh, the, the panelists and the moderator uh, and the uh, commentator very much for their presentations. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom after a while. And before I'd be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free.